Good deal. Thank you, Ian. Um, exciting today um, to be studying the return of our Lord Jesus. There is, uh, I would think, very few topics that are as enjoyable uh, to think about as this. He is coming back, and we don't know um, some of the details. What we do know is we are 168 hours closer than when we studied this last week, and that is really exciting. And, um, and even if we um, go to heaven a little bit more like the old-fashioned way, that's uh, coming up um, quickly too. Um, either way, it's coming soon. Greg, would you pray for us and a whole lot to look at again today? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, God, that you have made yourself known to us in your word and in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to know him more. We want to be more faithful followers of him. We want to walk in obedience. We want to uh, be able to accurately and faithfully instruct one another in the truth of your word. And so, God, we pray that in our time together, as we talk about uh, end times related uh, issues, that again, Lord, that we would be as rigorously textual as we could be. God, because your word is the deciding factor. And so, get, Lord, please give us uh, insight, give us wisdom, give us grace, give us humility, and yet firm conviction, God, in what we see your word teaching. And we pray that you would help us as a church to walk in the truth um, and in a way that is always pleasing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Mark, you want to help kind of start us, uh, review where we've been and uh, where we're headed today. Yeah, if you have a Bible, turn with us back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, which is one of the passages we looked at last Sunday, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, I wanted to mention just a couple, uh, kind of imagine the last two times we've had Sunday school, trying to kind of tie together some of that, review a little bit of that, remind us of some of that as we get started today. And so... um, Number one, uh, talking about one of the reasons why what we've talked about, the pre-tribulation rapture, uh, along with what has been called dispensational theology, uh, one of the reasons why those have become so popular, especially in Southern Baptist circles in the last uh, 100 plus years, uh, is because this, this doctrine was first really systematized publicized, put out in a a large way by John Nelson Darby in the 1830s, and uh, he was part of the Plymouth Brethren, and they they, uh, they had a huge influence on lots of disciples, and one of those was C.I. Schofield. And Schofield wrote the Schofield Reference Bible, and um, the Schofield Reference Bible sold over two million copies. The Ryrie Study Bible, the Criswell Study Bible also sold millions of copies, teaching the same kind of view in the early 1900s into the middle of the 20th century. And um, some of the reasons, perhaps, why uh, this view was seen as being so uh, popular, number one, and this is something that we have nothing but admiration for, is that movement stood strong in a time of theological liberalism. So during the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the last century, it was the pre-trib dispensationalists who held to the Bible and said, we don't care what any liberal says, we are going to believe what the text says. So Bible literalism was a huge part of that movement, and we love Bible literalism. We love to take the Bible as as what it's saying is true. And um, they're claiming that it almost, I've heard someone say it, the dispensational argument almost became a proxy war for biblical infallibility. 
In other words, it almost stood in the place of the argument for inerrancy is the, way it, is the way it seemed to many people. So that's why a lot of Bible colleges that were born, not just you know, Dallas Theological Seminary and other places, a lot of Bible colleges, I went to one, Tocoa Falls, that had in their doctrinal statement this kind of version of premillennialism and these kinds of things was in their very doctrinal statement. I don't think you could be uh, anything other than premillennial to be a teacher at the, at the college. Why was that? Because that's coming in the light of the fact that this was standing in as a war for a battleground over the Bible itself. And so I think that was one reason it became so entrenched in the 20th century. Often, also, and these have more or less prominence, but let's just face it. The left behind is a way better fiction than any other end times view you can possibly think of. The end times view that we're, we're persuaded of doesn't make for great fictional writing, okay? It's not exciting at all. It's, you, you don't figure out in the newspaper what's happening today based on what Revelation said. And those are the books that sell in the millions of copies. Some of them are, are, are discredited by anybody on either side, but some of them are still held by, by, by um, some on the, on the pre-trib side. So uh, you may remember uh, the book by Edgar Wisenant, I think I'm saying his name right, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in... 1988. Remember that? That great book. And the whole book was saying, you know, within a generation, these things will take place, the signs of the end. And what's the beginning of that? In 1948, the, the nation of Israel was reestablished. What's a generation? Biblically, it's 40 years. So within a generation of the signs of the times, which is Israel being reestablished, Jesus will return. So what's 40 years from 1948? It's 1988. He gives 88 reasons why Jesus will come back in the rapture in 1988. I was born in 1987. Luckily, the rapture did not occur in 1988, and so uh, on and on it goes. Number three, uh, the, the, uh, so I'm giving quick reasons. Number three, it gives a very pro-Israel message uh, in a post-World War II, post-Holocaust world. And so, uh, there, there is a tremendous sympathy, which we should have, for what happened, obviously, to the Jewish people in the 1930s and 40s. And so, to have such a politically pro-Israel position today really plays well in our culture because we, it's a post-World War II culture. It just fits well in, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the moment that we're living in. Uh, number four… There is a, and I have to be honest here, this is a little bit more of an American notion, but there's this American notion that God just wouldn't put his people through a terrible time of physical suffering, like the tribulation. And again, North Korean Christians would look at you and say, what are you talking about? Right? Christians from Afghanistan can tell you stories and say, what are you talking about? God wouldn't put his people through a difficult time. So sometimes the response is, well, why would God, I've, I've, one person, this is, this is a very, uh, not many people would say it this way, but why would Jesus leave his bride on earth to be abused? during the seven years of tribulation. I said, why would God allow Satan to kill Job's kids? Right? Why would God allow, and you could just fill in the blank with all the stories in the Bible, why would God allow Paul to be beheaded, the greatest man alive? Why would God allow Peter to be crucified upside down? Why would God ordain the crucifixion of his son? Why would God do that to somebody? So this, this, and this is more of a prosperity theology take on it, but this idea God would not let his people go through a time of horrific suffering. I'm saying, first of all, Christians in other parts of the world would not even know what you're talking about. And, and other than that, it sounds like a very American thing to say in response to why would God allow us to go through this. Every indication in Scripture is that we must be prepared because through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom and on and on. Mark, I would also add that never until the 1830s into the advent of the uh, pre-tribulation dispensational view did the church teach that, that we wouldn't suffer. Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse, all three versions said we would suffer. Yes. A lot of the early church fathers assumed that they were in the tribulation during the time of the Roman persecution of the church. And so, mm. uh, it, that was a very normal uh, kind of way of thinking. A lot of very famous Christians have been pre-trib, pre-millennial. Billy Graham, Warren Wiersbe, Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, James Dobson of Focus on the Family, Jerry Falwell, etc. The Assemblies of God denomination 
in order to be ordained in the assemblies of God, you must be pre-trib, uh, pre-millennial dispensational to be a pastor in the assemblies of God. So, it, th- these things have made the view, I think, extremely popular in our part of the, of the Western world in, in America today, so that many people who've grown up Southern Baptist think it's the only real view in town. But I, historically and biblically, I, I think that there are other, and I, I, I hope I say humbly, I think better, more biblical views uh, than, than that particular view. Greg? Um, wow, yeah, that's a lot. Got it um, covered. I have nothing at the moment. Like, he kind of took everything I was going to say by intro, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, let, let me review a few points from the last couple weeks. Sorry, Greg. Uh, th- l- number one, uh, in Matthew 24, the, uh, the phrase left behind, I think is actually a good thing. I think it's referring to those who are saved, and I think those who are taken away is compared to Noah's flood. They are swept away to judgment. Those who are left behind like Noah are those who are saved. Number two, there's a review. Again, the Olivet Discourse that Jesus teaches, Matthew 24, same chapter, Mark 13, Luke 21, never mentions believers being taken away before tribulation. It always refers to Jesus coming after the tribulation and us being uh, the, 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 the trumpet sounding and Christ elect being gathered to meet him after the time, immediately after the tribulation of those days. I mean, just read Matthew 24 for yourself and just ask, where does Jesus come back in relationship to the tribulation? And I think if you're just reading the text with an honest heart, I think you'll see it. It's, it's only spoken of as happening after the tribulation. Number three, um, I mentioned the other week, I won't read them now, but I mentioned 13 parallels that G.K. Beale gives between the return of Christ in Matthew 24, which is after the tribulation, and how it parallels 1 Thessalonians 4, the infamous rapture text, and 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, l- listen here in case anyone missed this the other week. Matthew 24, I believe, is clearly describing one return of Christ after tribulation, Matthew 24. And there are 13 parallels with how Jesus explained that, with how Paul presents Christ's return in the, in the famous rapture text, which is supposed to be seven years before the tribulation, but Paul uses the language of Jesus' post-tribulational coming to describe that. So it sounds like we're, we're, we're describing an event at the return of Christ. Uh, and it also makes me think, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is describing one return. If you are of the left-behind persuasion or dispensational, you have to believe 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 is describing seven years before the tribulation, the invisible rapture, and that 1 Thessalonians 5 is describing seven years later, the final return. But I think they're clearly describing one single event. That's why they match the parallels to Matthew 24. Number four reason why we don't believe in the pre-trib rapture The word apentasis, to meet someone, normally refers to a welcoming party coming out of a home or a city, welcoming the guests, turning around, and welcoming them back in the place they came from. We are said to apentasis, meet the Lord in the air. Who's going to turn around? Either Jesus is turning around to take us back to heaven, or we're turning around to welcome him to earth. I believe we are turning around to welcome him back to earth where he will come in judgment and to reign. Number five, the the three terms for Christ's return in the New Testament, parousia, his coming, uh, his epiphania, his appearing, and his apocalypsis, his revealing, his being revealed, all three of those words are used a total of 25 times to refer to Christ's future coming, a, to- a total of 25 times. They are all explicitly linked to texts that describe Christ coming, appearing, being revealed after the tribulation. They are never once used explicitly to describe Christ coming before the tribulation, uh, which to me is a strong argument that it's a post-tribulational return only. Number six is where I want to stop here for a second. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 8. Uh, Papa Fred, could you read, or Greg, could you read Second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8? Yeah. It says, this is evidence 
of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Greg, what here in this text seems to indicate uh, what we're discussing? Um, well, you look at verse 5. It's something you've kind of mentioned already the last couple of times we've looked at this. He's talking to um, the church at Thessalonica as though these are all things they could themselves experience. Um, and you start, and I hadn't saw this before until we were reading, uh, in verse 5, he says, for which the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Hmm. So the suffering that will be immediately vindicated and punished, or um, God will punish those who are inflicting this suffering, it's, it's not on a future group of people who will, will live after the time of the Thessalonians in the church, but he's, he's speaking as though the Thessalonians themselves will, will be on earth and see Jesus coming in flaming fire in this vengeance with his angels to bring relief to them in vengeance to their enemies. Um, because that's verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The affliction here is talking about the persecution of the church, the persecution of believers that's going to be taking place at the time of the return of Christ. Like you, you really have to presuppose something um, before you come to this to, to find two different groups of people being talked about here. If we just stick with the text, I think, I think it's pretty clear that those who are going to be afflicted at the time Jesus returns could be the Thessalonians. I mean, mm -hmm. again, we, we don't know the day or the hour, but the way Paul is writing, it's not saying, okay, well, you're going to suffer in one way, but those guys at the end, they're really going to be afflicted, and they're the ones who are going to be looking forward to this. No, it, it's one group. The, the church now and the church then, whenever Jesus comes back, it's the church on earth suffering, being persecuted, being afflicted, and the church looking for this public second coming. That's exactly right. And if, if you look, and this is, this is something to do maybe even on your own time or even right now in this moment, if you look at verses 5 through 8 of 2 Thessalonians 1, and you look at that, you can go all the way down to the end of the chapter, but especially 5 through 8, how many times does Jesus return? I think any honest reading would say, how many? It, there's one, one return being talked about. When he comes on that day, right? So when he comes, when he is revealed with his angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Okay, so there's, there's, it just seems clear. There's one single return being described, but this is what's amazing. What is the connection between the church and its relief from its sufferings and this return? Okay, so what's the connection between the church and its relief from persecution and suffering and this return of Christ? The answer is, the church is relieved from suffering when Jesus comes. Mm -hmm. So his return in this text, this one return, is the time the church is relieved of its suffering and persecution. Okay, now, number two, according to the pre-trib view, that happens, remember, seven, beginning of the seven years, the church is relieved. And at the end of the seven years, Jesus comes a second time to inflict judgment. When does the judgment inflicted on the church's enemies happen in this text? It happens at the same time. At the same it? time he comes. When Jesus comes with his angels in flaming fire. So, so to me, this text, I'm not, again, I don't want to be arrogant the way I say this, but I think this text grammatically demands one return, the same two, th two things happen. The church is relieved of its affliction when Jesus returns. And why are they relieved? Because when Jesus returns, he judges their enemies. 
That's why they're relieved. And so the, the final judgment is supposed to be at the end of the seven years of tribulation is happening at the same time as the so-called secret rapture at the beginning of the seven years, which makes me think there's no seven years. These are both happening at the end of the tribulation. So just, just in case you don't, you don't believe me on that, let, let, me, let, me read two, let me read two references here. And this is not to be mean. It's not to be mean at all. I, I have great respect for the man I'm about to quote. This is Richard Mayhew, who is the co-editor of MacArthur's Systematic Theology. So this guy is a heavy hitter. Okay, I'm not, I, have, I have nothing but respect for Richard Mayhew, Mayhew. He's addressing this very text and this very question that I'm asking right now. And his answer, these are, this is straight from the Master's Seminary website. This is Richard Mayhew's response. Why does it sound like both the pre and post rapture, I mean, the you know, texts are happening at one time? His answer is this. Paul is not writing a detailed chronological or even precise prophetic treatise here, but is rather wanting to give the Thessalonians hope that in the end, God's righteousness will prevail. Now listen. These are the exact words. Paul has, you ready? Compressed the details so that the range of time is not apparent, nor are all the details. So he admits the text says there's one return and both the pre-trib rapture and the post-rapture, they happen at the same time. The, the rescue of the church and the judgment happen grammatically at the same moment. But he says, but the, the, why is that? Paul is compressing the details and he's compressing the time. Well, you know what? I, I don't think he's compressing the time. I think he's actually saying what happens, which is that there's one return and that both events, the salvation and judgment, occur at the same time. To me, that's a, a pretty strong <laughs> argument against because that's a pretty weak, uh, I think, defense of that particular position to say Paul is compressing the details and the range of time is not apparent in the text. And as he's saying it sounds like they happen simultaneously, which is, I think, what the text actually is, is teaching. Well, also here in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, when you, you reference this in verse 10, when it speaks, when Jesus comes on that day, that word, that day, what else, where else is that referred to here? You get to chapter two, he's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our being gathered together to him. We ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seemingly, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's the day of the Lord? He's not introduced the second day. Yeah. It's the same day, the day that uh, is being talked about that the church longs for, this, this day of deliverance and relief from affliction, um, is the big day of the Lord. Um, and, and again, the dispensational perspective tends to find, well, there's, there's, depending on the context, well, there's the day of God, there's the day of the Lord, there's the day of Christ. There's all, they, they divide up what we mean by all these different days. And when you just, again, if you don't compress, which it doesn't seem like the text is doing that naturally, you have to, again, presuppose something to come in and compress it like that to find that differences that don't seem to be there on a more straightforward reading. It, it's one day, the day of God, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, that day, it's all one day, one in the same day, and there's no division. So you're really saying the more literal way to take this is what we're seeing is to yeah. take it the post-trib way, Papa? Well, it says right here, this is, again, I go back to the Olivet Discourse because I think you can make all your arguments right there. Jesus never taught two comings. He said after, uh, this is uh, tw Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he talks about the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the parousia with power of sea, I guess, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Boom, there it is, it happens. He's, he taught that, one coming. 
on that day, and anytime that he talks about that day or the day of the Lord, it's all the same thing. Good. Mark? Yes, if you turn back to, uh, to 2 Thessalonians, uh, and this time to chapter 2, In these verses, there's concern about whether the day of the Lord has come or not, and clearly they've misunderstood what the day of the Lord exactly is, and Paul begins by assuring them that two things have to happen before the day of the Lord. There's a mass apostasy. I think there's going to be a massive falling away amongst so-called Christians in the world, and then there's also going to be the man of lawlessness who, is a, who appears, who's, I believe, the Antichrist at that point. And uh, let, let me just quote uh, Piper on this. Piper says, and this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8, uh, we read it several times last week. I just, Piper just says, if, if Paul were a pre-tribulationist, why did he not simply say in verse 3 that the Christians don't need to worry that the day of the Lord is already here because all Christians are still here? Instead, he talks just the way you would expect a post-tribulational person to do. He tells them that they should not think that the day of the Lord is here because the apostasy and the man of lawlessness has not happened yet. In other words, if the rapture happens first, then the rebellion, then the man of lawlessness, then the final coming and judgment. How do I know the final coming day and judgment hasn't happened yet? The answer is the church hasn't been raptured. That would be the most obvious way to answer the question. But Paul doesn't say a word about that. Why? Because the rapture happens with the final coming and judgment. So preceding both the rapture and the judgment is the great rebellion, the apostasy, the man of lawlessness, the increase of persecution of Christians, then the two events, the rescue of the church and the judgment of, the, of Christ's enemies happen at the same time. And let me comment on that too here in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2. Uh, it says verse 8, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So there's going to be um, a lot of trickery, a lot of false things going on. Verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who were perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. Now, he's talking about Satan working through deceptive means. There's going to be a lot of false falsehood, which implies a lot of false teachers, mm -hmm. people claiming that they're speaking the truth when in reality they are speaking error. Go back to Matthew 24, mm -hmm. okay? This is Jesus here. This is Matthew 24, verse 9, talking about uh, the end, answering his disciples. He says, verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Um, and just a note here that if you have... If you pay attention in the news, Christianity is not exactly in favor in the world today. In fact, there are movements even here in our own country to try to pin all the evils of Western civilization on Christianity. Um, so you see this hatred, um, not just here in the U.S., but across the world, um, is already there. Uh, verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's deception, false teaching. Um, and look at verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And then verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does it mean to endure to the end? You persevere until you see Jesus come back and bring relief from your affliction. Um, but you see the connection there between God sending a delusion, the activity of Satan with false signs and wonders and deception and falsehood. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. It's just a slightly different way of saying the same thing. And Greg, how about verse 24? 
that it matches no, up directly. Where false Christ and false prophets will yeah. arise, perform great signs and wonders, and how convincing. So to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So yeah. we would be conned if yeah. it wasn't for God's. So I just think that matches up directly with what you just read in Second Corinthians, uh, Thessalonians. Well, I think too, there's, you know, we talk about this, this big apostasy that's going to take place, this turning away. We're, we're not talking about true believers. We're talking about the visible church. Mm -hmm. Because if, if what Christ said is true, then the church is going to be everywhere in the world. It's going to be visible everywhere in the world, at least externally. And so when this deception comes, when this apostasy happens, you're going to see visible professing Christians in mass beginning to believe a lie. And, and I'm not trying to overstate the case with this and come back to something we've, I don't want to beat a dead horse, come back to something we've talked about so much. But in the modern social justice movement, as we see so many Christians, they have abandoned biblical categories for, for worldly categories to identify sin, righteousness, what is true, what is false, what is good, what is, what is bad, what is beautiful, what like everything. They have abandoned this while still saying they hold to this. They have emptied the Bible's categories and, and put in place worldly categories, and they're now reading the Bible through a worldly lens instead of through the Bible's own grids and categories that it gives us. And so we see, like even in our own day, we see how that could happen in the visible church. There are Christians saying things that Christians ought never to say in, in, our, in the visible church today. And on that note, uh, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I know we don't really travel with compasses these days, but if you had a compass back in the day and you're traveling, if your compass gets off by just a few degrees, mm -hmm. if something gets broken, it's busted, just a few degrees off, in other words, redefining key biblical terms would yes. be a way of getting your compass off course. So you're, you're no longer being guided. You're using biblical language, but with new definitions that are from the world, right? That, that's mm -hmm. how it starts. So you're still quoting scripture, yes. but you've gutted the meaning of the text and you've changed it for something else. Mm -hmm. And so over time, you're going to begin to drift according to your new definitions, your new meanings for verses. That's going to drag you further and further away from the truth. And so one of the reasons why, and I know, I know some people can probably maybe visit our church here and there and they can say things like, man, they seem really kind of persnickety about their doctrine around there. Like they're really like tight on their doctrine. They want, they want everything to be, you know, really careful on how they do all their doctrine. I know to some people it can look very strange how, how intense our church is about biblical fidelity and truthfulness. Well, whether we live to see the Antichrist or not, which again, I said that could happen thousands of years from now. It could happen five years from now. I have no idea. But whether we live to see the Antichrist, many Antichrists have come. There are many false teachers in the world and persecutions in the world and temptations in the world to allure us away. And so if we are not being really careful with our theology, then what's the opposite? We're going to be loose with our theology. We're going to be open and susceptible to redefining terms in an unbiblical way, in a worldly way, because it feels right in the moment, culturally. And so, yeah, I guess justice does mean what the world is saying, not what the Bible is saying. Oh, I guess that would be right. And then once we adopt the world's definition, we start drifting. And then before long, you could end up rejecting. We've seen people tragically rejecting core tenets of the Christian faith because they bought into something that was unbiblical and worldly and drags them away. So whether it's fear of being made fun of at work or actual physical persecution that drives you towards the world— because you're going to be way more accepted, right, if you're saying what the world wants to hear and you claim the Bible supports those views versus if you say what the Bible really says and people look at you like you are crazy, right? So we've got to be so careful with our doctrine because it's going to be what we have to fight against the world. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing for the church like a, like a big ship to be in the ocean. It's another thing for the ocean to get into the ship, right? It's one thing for us to be in the world. It's another thing for the world to get into us, to get into the churches. And so we need to do everything we can to keep the water of the world out of the church. And, and biblical fidelity is one of the primary ways we do that. 
And I think, too, I want to make one more point on this. Verse 13 in Matthew 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This perseverance, I mean, this is the, like the classic fifth point of, you know, Calvinism, whatever, the perseverance of the saints, the endurance of the saints. Like, this is what true faith is. True faith endures to the end. And that really only fits. And I, again, I'm not trying to be snarky or anything like that, but perseverance really only fits with the post-tribulational view because it assumes you're going to be here through all the hard times. That's why you need to persevere. If you're not going to be here, why stress endurance and perseverance through affliction, persecution, false teaching, if really all of that's only going to happen once you're gone? Like it makes more sense with one return of Christ. I think you're right. In verse 24, again, those two really great words. If you love the Lord Jesus today, please take comfort in this as convincing as Satan will be, if possible. Look at there. So to lead, the, to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It's impossible. We will endure to the end. We will. Because you began that good work in us, we'll carry it on to completion. Man, we can take such comfort in that, I think, in that God is faithful to keep us, even if he, because if he wouldn't, verse 24 says, we would be led astray. I'm so thankful he's faithful. Well, and I think that stresses too how hard it's going to be when the visible church yes, is sir. turning away because it's going to be people we trust. It's going to be people that have been platformed that we have probably recommended on sermons and books and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden we can't do it anymore. But it's people we know, we love that, that have impacted us. And that's what I think what's going to make it so hard. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, um, I, I sat down this morning and took Matthew 24 and just walked through and made, made some points from what Jesus said. And you talk about the, a man of lawlessness being revealed or antichrist. Um, I found this to be interesting that the, um, the Jews, of course, you mentioned this in your sermon, they, they rebelled in 66 and, of course, destroyed. The, the temple was destroyed in 70. But that was not the end of their rebellion. Because Jesus was talking about many false Christs, many... Uh, uh, will come, uh, false prophets will come. Th that was happening in the first century already. That was happening in the second century, and it's been happening for 2,000 years. But I thought it was still uh, this interesting that even in the time shortly after Christ in 132, the Jews still, this is from um, backgrounds of early Christianity, the Jews still not learned their lessons. Two edicts of Emperor Hadrian not aimed at the Jews, caused them to revolt in Palestine in 132, imposing the death penalty for castration, which was ordered to include circumcision and planning to rebuild Jerusalem with a temple to Zeus on the site of the old temple. A leader rose up by the name of Simon, who was recognized by Rabbi Aqaba, a student of Johannan's at Jemiah, as the Messiah. Now, that's, that's a 132. They had some guy named Simon who said he was the Messiah. He was designated Bar Kokhba, son of a star from Numbers 24, 17. Now, let me read you that. Uh, I see him now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Who is that? That's Jesus. But he claims this verse, and a scepter will rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of, of, of Sheth. So, Antichrists were there then. This caused a big revolt. In fact, after this revolt, the Romans really did decimate Israel. Totally, I mean, the Jews were yeah. persona non grata. They had to get out, period. So, uh, that's just not 
a forecast for today. That's been happening. Yes. This apostasy. Mark. So let me jump back into my, to, to, the, to the 13 reasons uh, why we doubt the pre-trib rapture. Number eight, and these, these will go much more quickly here. Number eight, the three texts that are claimed to support the so-called secret rapture are 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54, and John 14, 1 through 4. None of those texts gives any indication that they are happening before a time of tribulation. I actually think you can make arguments against those, but, but none of those give any indication that they're happening before tribulation. Number nine, I mentioned this last time, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, and this is considered a rapture text, it says that this will happen when the, what trumpet sounds? The Last, last trumpet sounds. Now, here's the problem. If the last trumpet sounds here at the beginning of the seven years, and then there's seven trumpets of revelation poured out in the middle here, right? And then you have the eighth trumpet happening down there for the final return of Christ and the gathering of his elect, then the last trumpet's not really the last trumpet, is it? You got the last trumpet, then you have seven more trumpets of judgment from revelation, and then you got the last, last trumpet. Well, why would you call this one the last trumpet? And I, my argument is because it actually is the last trumpet. It doesn't happen here. It happens there. After the seven trumpets of revelation, you have the eschatos trumpet, the last trumpet that is the literal last trumpet. It's the exact same trumpet call of Matthew 24, which is after the tribulation. It's the same trumpet call of, of 1 Thessalonians 4. These are all at the end of the tribulation. There's one trumpet. The dead in Christ rise. Christ returns. We meet him in the air. He comes in judgment of the world. Number 10, and this is going back to what Greg already said, so I'm just going to just really re reinforce what Greg already said. Listen to the different uh, ways the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. Okay, real quick, I'll read them. These are from Doug Moo. It's called, number one, the day, Romans 13, 12. This day, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. The great day, Jude 6. That day, Matthew 7, 22. The last day, John 6, 39. The day of judgment, Matthew 10, 15. The day of visitation, 1 Peter 2, 12. The day of wrath, Romans 2, 5. The day when God judges, Romans 2, 16. The day of God, 2 Peter 3, 12. Uh, the day of the Lord, Acts 2.20, the day of Christ, Philippians 1.10, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.14, the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6, the day of the Son of Man, Luke 17.13. Now, I am convinced those are all ways of referring to the same day. It just, you just use different language. Lord or Lord Jesus, it's the same Lord, right? The day of God. Now, here's what makes this tricky. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw people under the train here, but like, uh, I'll just read a quick quote. Uh, from, from MacArthur Study Bible. On this note, I love the MacArthur Study Bible. I hate even having to, 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 to say anything like this. I, it's one of my favorite study Bibles. I've used it since my entire Christian life. I've benefited so much from it. I use it every week of my life almost. MacArthur does this. Second, he, he says, okay, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, this refers to the coming of the Lord to his church at the rapture, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this should be distinguished from the day of our Lord. First Thessalonians 5, 2, a term referring to the judgment of the ungodly. So the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is the secret rapture, but the day of our Lord is the final judgment. When you have to make these kinds of distinctions to support your theology, I think it is more likely that the theology is forcing the distinctions rather than the text itself forcing the distinctions. When you go read all these texts about the day, that, that great day, the day of our Lord, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of God, they're all referring to, guess what? It's one and the same day. It's when he comes, resurrects the saints, and judges the world. And to distinguish them begs the question, where are you getting this from? John Walvoord, who I learned is one of the great defenders of dispensational theology from the last century, you heard him in person. In person. I shaking his hand. Wow. Yeah. Fred, I need to shake your hand and get the blessing. But the, here, is what, here is what John <laughs> John Walford said uh, he was a strong dispensationalist arguer. Now, listen, this is a moment of unusual uh, transparency. Now, listen to what he says. John Walford, pre-tribulation. He distinguishes the day of Christ from the day of the Lord. Okay? Quote, 
If the, if the pre-tribulational rapture is established on other grounds, these references seem to refer to these two different days. In other words, he says, I grant you the words don't actually show that these are two different days. If you grant that they are different days based on other grounds, in other words, his theological system, then you have to distinguish these days as being different from one another. But if you just read the text, you would assume the day of our Lord, the day of the Lord Jesus, the day of God, the day of judgment, the day of salvation are all referring to the day. And the idea that the day of our Lord, the day of our Lord Jesus are different days, to me it is just, it's unnecessarily confusing things when I think the text is actually quite simple in this regard. I think the day is the day. I think it's the one great and final day. Thoughts on, on that? Well, it seems like we ought to pursue, and I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to make it an absolute principle, but it seems like we should try to pursue a principle of harmonization rather than division. Mm -hmm. Because you think about, we, we want our, our, our method to be consistent. And what is one of the things we do against skeptics against the New Testament, especially the four Gospels? They say, well, this, this event in Matthew doesn't have the same. So they, they must be wrong. And we don't say, well, they're talking about two events. We say it's, it's two perspectives on the same event. Yep. And some will include some details. Some will include other details. But we don't go and say, well, that must be two separate things because the details aren't exactly the same. Or this one, there's two guys. This one, he only references one. Well, obviously, it's like we don't do that. We say, no, one author includes some details. Some, another one includes other details. And I think we need to follow that approach on issues like this. Instead of trying to find a division between these days, let's harmonize and say, no, maybe they're actually referring to the same thing. Just one is looking at it from a slightly different way, maybe using a different term, but they're all looking at the same thing. I think hermeneutically, um, our interpretation is correct. I don't know how you can get around it um, uh, as far as the post-tribulation -tribul uh, coming, of, coming of Christ. Scripture is pretty clear on that. You know, in humility, we say that. And, and all of the points that you made, your 13 points, are, you're not done yet with those. I'll never be done. <laughs> You'll never, no, maybe we'll never. kick them down over to next week. It's not that we're, what's the term, snarky? We're not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we're not trying to be snarky. We're just trying to be biblical, I think. And one of the reasons why this is, I showed Mark this. This is Tim LaHaye's book on Revelation, which dates back to 73. And from this book or from his position came the Left Behind series mm -hmm. about 20 years later. The point is, though, I bought into this back then, and yet I did it because somebody told me that's what it meant. But when I read it for myself, the same points that we're trying to make here, it didn't make sense. I couldn't, I couldn't jihaw the, a separate return, for example. So uh, I think we just have to be um, uh, biblical. We have to be humble. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not throwing anybody under the bus. No. We're simply um, calling attention to what the Bible says, the text. Well, can, yeah. oh, go no, go, go. go. Um, all right. Um, um, we're going to fast forward to, to Revelation. I want to show you something here. Um, again, why we want to defer to the flow of the text and check our, our presuppositions whenever we read the text. Uh, because, again, I'm going to mention John Walford. Now, remember when I read this. I think it's in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It was a whole commentary, Old and New Testament, put out by Dallas Theological Seminary professors on, you know, on the vast majority of issues. Like, I reference this a lot because their insights are great. Like, it's, it's they're, you know, defending the Bible. They're, they have, like you said earlier, they have no tolerance for, like, liberalism, skepticism, like, you know, people who are trying to question Christianity. Mm -hmm. But that, that 
you know, as, as he said, as you quoted, you have to have these other theological conclusions in place before you start to see the differences. Otherwise, if those theological conclusions aren't there, the differences yep. disappear. Exactly. Revelation chapter 5, one of the most significant texts in Revelation on the glory of Jesus um, we know, you know, again, there's a whole lot that goes into this. So I'm, I'm condensing a lot and I'm skipping over a lot. So please bear with me on that. But we get this picture of Christ here um, in, in John's vision. And where there's this scroll in the hand of God who's sitting on the throne. It's sealed with seven seals. Um, and, you know, this mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice who's worthy to open the scroll, break its seals. And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And, you know, I think it's generally agreed upon. This is the scroll represents the, you know, the finality of God's plans for the universe, how his judgments are going to come, salvation, the end and the unfolding of all his purposes. Whether you're post-trib or pre-trib, I think you would see that there. You might fill it out a little differently, but in general, that's what it is. And John is seeing this and he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John hears this. He's told to, you know, listen. And then when he turns, he looks and he sees what? Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, stop there. You know, a, a, a natural reading of this text, I think you would say, okay, we're, we're seeing the Old Testament picture of the Messiah, the New Testament accomplishment for salvation, the lion and the lamb referring to one and the same person. How did the lion conquer? He conquered by what? Dying as a lamb. But obviously he's not dead because he's standing. So he's resurrected. Um, I read this and, and, it, and I had to read it multiple times because it really floored me. Walford would look at a text like this and say, well, obviously... The lion has to refer to Jesus in his second coming and the lamb refers to his first coming. And it's like, there's nothing about second coming here. This is one in the same first coming, Jesus conquering on the cross and the resurrection to, to accomplish our salvation, to, to you know, usher in and to inaugurate this new age in which men and women everywhere are calling upon God through faith in him. Um, and again, you, you have to, to come preloaded with with presuppositions and conclusions to even begin to find a division in this where there is none. This is one in the same event, one in the same person, one in the same vision. Um, it's two sides of the same coin here. The line of the tribe of Judah is the lamb who was slain. The line of the tribe of Judah conquered how? Through death and resurrection. And so you have to, again, presuppose certain things in order to find a division that in a natural reading is just not there. Let me, uh, I think we're going to get to the end today. I think we're going to get to the end. Number, number 11 in the list of uh, 13 reasons to doubt the pre-trib rapture. Number 11, the reference to the day of the Lord coming like a thief. Now, listen, this is interesting. Always refers to Christ's final coming and judgment, and MacArthur agrees with that. So the, the three or four times that he's coming like a thief, he, MacArthur, and we would all be in agreement, it's the final return of Christ after tribulation and judgment, coming like a thief. What's interesting about that is... Um, if it's true that there's a secret rapture exactly seven years before Jesus comes like a thief, it would be the only second coming event that you could actually calculate perfectly. Because you would just go, when did the Christians disappear? That was uh, three and a half years ago. Okay, within three and a half years, 
for sure, Jesus is going to come back visibly to judge the world. So if you have that seven-year thing, then you have a perfect calculation. When do the Christians disappear? Set your clock for seven years. He's coming back. Well, even a nominal Christian, a non-Christian could see in the text of Scripture, well, the Christians all disappeared. The Bible says he's going to come back seven years later. I think we can calculate it almost to the very moment of when he's going to come back. But those are the very texts that says he's coming like a thief. Why would it describe that return as coming like a thief? The answer is because there is no perfect seven years before that tells you when that's going to happen. It's going to happen, although there are certain things that will happen first, antichrist, apostasy. We don't know the day or the hour of when that exact event would take place. Number 12, almost done. And this is just repeating what you guys just said. If all you had was a Bible, I don't think you would ever come up with this complicated system. Let me ask you an honest question. If you grew up with this mindset, did you come to believe in the two returns of Christ or the one return in two stages separated by seven years, which is still, I think, two comings? But did you come to believe in the two returns of Christ in the future by reading your Bible on your own? Or did the system of pre-trib rapture and dispensational theology get taught to you first and then influence how you read the text of Scripture? Which of those is true? And what I will find is it's not even close on this one. Everybody comes to believe these things because they get get taught the system, and then they see the text that way. That's not true of, say, God's sovereignty and salvation. You might be taught the system of Reformed theology first and then see it in the text, but you might just read your Bible and see, oh, elect before the foundation of the world. You can see unconditional election in your Bible by reading Romans 9 in an English translation. You don't need Calvin to tell you about that. You don't need that. But with this system, you won't find it without the system first. And so, 13 is the last point, and this is basically almost the same thing. It's very similar. Um, if, you, if you reject dispensationalism, that sharp distinction between Israel's future and the church's future, I believe Israel has a future in the church. I don't think Israel has a future independent of the church. That's, that determines whether you're dispensational. If you believe Jesus has a future for Israel as an ethnic political nation in the future depart, apart from the church, then you're dispensational. But if you reject this sharp distinction between the ethnic Israel and the church, then the pre-trib rapture can't exist because there's no reason for it. It would make no sense for the church to leave and no Christians are in the world and then it just, nothing makes any sense. So you, you have to believe dispensationalism first before you would even see the pre-trib rapture in the text. And those are, those are the 13. Can you start next week with objections to yes. this? The, the, and, there are uh, se- several objections next week and w- w- I think maybe the strongest so-called pre-trib verse uh, in Revelation we have not talked about yet. So I, w- I would like to address that too. Good. Papa, can you close us? Yes, uh, before I do, I'd like to read from uh, Revelation 19, verse 11, and several other verses. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, hasten that day uh, when we can see your parusha, your coming, your revealing, your uh, second advent uh, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We look around us, all around us, and, and 
we live, uh, it seems, in an upside down world. Uh, what's right is called wrong, and what's wrong is called right. And uh, so I think that's, uh, like Jerry always says, we're one day closer. And uh, that day could not come any sooner for me than right this minute. So thank you, Lord, for this study. Thank you for revelation. Thank you for prophecy. Um, thank you for the revealing of your word as uh, we've discussed this afternoon and other afternoons. Bless now our service uh, and, and the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.